My name is Edmund Dodd. It is a pleasure to welcome you to episode one of this podcast for piano teachers. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to share my thoughts about piano teaching, information and ideas I've gathered in my experiences over the past 30 years, teaching university piano majors, piano pedagogy courses, adjudicating, examining, performing, and traveling to different libraries and collections around the world. So in these podcasts, I'll offer my thoughts on what I believe are fundamentally important aspects of piano teaching for students of all ages and abilities. You'll notice that the description of this episode contains a link to a PDF. Please download the PDF, print it if you wish. I recommend that you use it as a guide while you listen to the podcast and keep it for future reference. The title of this episode is Priorities and Perspectives. If you were to try and put the year 2020 into perspective, what a year it was. Wherever you are, I hope you and your loved ones are safe and healthy during this challenging time. The pandemic has tested us in so many ways. Our healthcare systems, the speed of scientific research and vaccine development, international cooperation, cooperation within countries, human compassion, kindness, patience, and the list goes on. It has afflicted the world with tragedy as so many lives have been lost to this virus. Over two million people have died. The pandemic has made us think long and hard about the most vulnerable in society and I hope elevate our frontline workers to the level of respect, admiration and support they deserve. This difficult time has also made us painfully aware of the importance and absolute necessity of human contact as approximately 90% of the world's population is living under travel restrictions and millions have had to self-isolate and be separated from their loved ones. Now, as piano teachers, human contact is at the core of what we do. It is fundamental to who we are. For many, teaching has had to move to the virtual world with all of its challenges. Certainly, a new way of teaching and interacting than most of us are used to or ever imagined doing. And for people like me living in rural communities with internet service that is not always fast and reliable, online teaching and online meetings have certainly presented significant challenges and tested my patience on many occasions over the past year. As piano teachers, the professional services we offer are quite unique in the lives of our students and our communities. When you think about it, there are very few activities where young children establish a relationship, a one-on-one -on -one weekly relationship with another adult outside the home. An adult that they will likely see every week for many years. Yes, there are many group-based sports and other activities for children, but the vast majority of what we do is one-on-one -on -one weekly interaction. Of course, this provides tremendous opportunities for the private teacher to assist in the education and development of our students, but it also comes with a huge responsibility. Because these young people are society's future. They will grow up to take their place in the world wherever and in whatever capacity this may be. So human contact and one-on-one -on -one interaction is at the core of what we do, and our work is important. It is very important. You know, Beethoven once said, and I quote, I know no more sacred duty than to raise and educate a child. There have been many studies on the benefits of one-on-one -on -one instruction in other fields of education, and we should be pleased and proud of what we do and the contribution we make. One of the books in my library is entitled Developing Talent in Young People. 
Over a four-year period, a team of researchers at the University of Chicago undertook a study of the training and development of exceptionally talented individuals, individuals who had reached the highest levels of accomplishment in their fields. So the team studied concert pianists, sculptors, mathematicians, neurologists, Olympic swimmers, and tennis champions. Twenty-one American concert pianists were studied, all exceptionally advanced, all of them had won at least one prize in a major international competition. But the pianists were from very different backgrounds and different parts of the country. What was really interesting was that one of the characteristics that the 21 outstanding concert pianists had in common was that as young children, as beginners, they had very positive experiences with their first piano teacher. At a young age, they established an important relationship with another adult outside their home, a piano teacher they described as someone who was warm, supportive, and loving. At an age when children are beginning to spend a substantial part of their time each day in school, away from home, the pianists had an individual to go to outside their home who had a tremendous positive impact on the child. So as children, these 21 concert pianists were motivated and they loved learning and practicing. What's also interesting is that as beginners, none of them studied with virtuoso performers. Their parents did not choose the teacher based on that type of musical expertise. The parents wanted to ensure that the teacher was a good fit for the child, and one of the parents, usually the mother, often attended lessons regularly with their child. So we must never underestimate the influence and responsibility we have as piano teachers especially as teachers of beginners and young children. I also feel that this pandemic has forced us to step back and think about our priorities. What is important in life? What are the things that really matter? Has the pandemic reshaped our thinking in this regard? My wife and I have spent many months having virtual visits with our children and four grandchildren as we all live in different parts of the country. We so look forward to being able to travel and visit them again in person. Our daughter and her fiancé had a Zoom wedding in May. Now, a Zoom wedding was something none of us had expected. It was a beautiful wedding, but honestly, a year ago, many of us had never heard of Zoom. In December, we attended our grandson's virtual piano recital. He played beautifully, and we heard many other talented young pianists from his teacher's studio. We loved it. Now, as the Zoom recital provided an actual glimpse into the homes of all these students, I was struck by the fact that many of the students, I think most of them, did not have acoustic pianos. They were performing on digital keyboards. And that will be a topic for a future podcast. So it's interesting how during times of crisis and things we have taken for granted become much more vividly in focus, and so we think a great deal about priorities. Well, in this introductory podcast, I also want to talk about priorities and perspectives as piano teachers. Many of you are familiar with Francis Clark, a renowned American piano teacher and author, co-author of a widely used and highly respected piano method series. When she was in her 80s and still very active, she was interviewed at a teacher's conference and was asked, what changes in your teaching methodologies and attitudes have occurred since you first started teaching? Frances Clark began her response by joking, and she said, Well, I don't know as much as I knew when I first started teaching. But then, 
she went on to make a profound statement. So, after decades of teaching, decades of research, writing, and expanding a piano method series, she established an excellent school for training piano teachers. Hers was a life immersed in piano teaching. So after all of that, she said, and I quote, I'm well aware that the child or the student is much more important than the music. Let me repeat that. I'm well aware that the child or the student is much more important than the music. Now, this is consistent with other statements she made. In a video entitled Conversations with Frances Clark, Her Life and Teaching, it was produced in 1992, she made a similar statement when she was talking about priorities. She said, and I quote, We teach the person first, music second, and the piano third. The person first, music second, and the piano third. So these are interesting thoughts from a remarkable teacher. So student-centered teaching. As piano teachers, we have these wonderful opportunities to get to know our students well. What makes them tick? How does this particular student learn? What teaching technique or approach works? What doesn't work? What motivates and inspires them? What are the students' strengths and weaknesses in piano? And what repertoire would be best to assign next to help inspire the student more and take the playing to the next level? And on and on the list goes. But the idea of student-centered teaching, student-centered learning, is not unique to piano teaching. In the field of educational psychology, Carl Rogers was internationally respected. He wrote a book, considered a classic in the field, entitled Freedom to Learn. He felt that the most important quality a teacher can have is empathy, seeing things from the student's point of view. And I'll quote from his book. Carl Rogers said, When the teacher has the ability to understand the student's reactions from the inside, has a sensitive awareness of the way the process of education and learning seems to the student, then again the likelihood of significant learning is increased. Well, questions about how people learn have been asked and studied for centuries. There have been many theories throughout the ages, but since this podcast is not intended to be a sedative, I'm not going to bore you with these theories, even though many of them have influenced piano teaching and the ways in which uh, piano method series have been written and organized. But I am going to share two research studies that I believe are important for piano teachers to keep in mind. The first one I learned about many years ago, but had a significant impact on my approach to teaching. So in my undergraduate program, I completed a Bachelor of Music degree and a Bachelor of Music Education degree. And in the education degree, there was a required course on the psychology of education. So this was back in the early 1980s, and we were examining some of the work that had shaped thinking in education in the 20th century. And I was introduced to some of the research of Dr. Paul Whitty, who had been a professor at Northwestern University for many years. He had done a lot of research on teaching gifted children. He was also a pioneer. For example, when the television appeared, he was interested in the potential for TV in education. Even though his research had been carried out decades before I learned about it, there was one particular study that had a significant impact on my thinking. So, at the time of this research, one of the big questions being asked was, how do you define excellence in teaching? When you study the careers of highly successful teachers, what characteristics do they have in common? There were questions like, are the outstanding teachers the ones who achieve the highest marks at university? 
or those who graduated from specific colleges or universities? Were the best teachers those whose parents were teachers? In other words, was it genetic? Was there something in their blood that made them outstanding teachers? So in all of these questions and other questions, there was no strong correlation. So in the mid-1940s, Paul Witte had the revolutionary idea, why don't we ask the students? So 12,000 students from grades 1 to 12 were asked to write about the teacher who helped them the most. 12,000 students, grades 1 to 12, were asked to write about the teacher who helped them the most. And then a team of three researchers analyzed the 12,000 letters and came up with a list of characteristics of outstanding teachers from the most frequently mentioned characteristics to the least frequent. So there were 12 characteristics. The most frequent one of outstanding teachers, and this is from the student's perspective, was the teacher had a democratic and cooperative attitude, a sense that everybody in the class was equal. Everybody could do the work. The best teachers were kind and considerate. One student in middle school made the following comment, which I really liked, and, and, and the student said, this teacher makes a fellow want to get up early and go to school and not play sick. So these great teachers were kind and considerate. Number three, most frequent, patience. Nadia Reisenberg was a pianist who taught at Juilliard for many years, and she once said, and I quote, if you don't have the patience of an angel, you have no right to teach. Number four, the best teachers had wide interests. They were well-rounded individuals with many facets to their personalities. Number five, they were pleasant, pleasant in appearance and manner. They were fair and impartial. Teachers treated everyone the same. And you could tell it not only by what the teachers said, but what they did. Great teachers had a sense of humor. And as piano teachers, having a sense of humor is a great asset. When I was in high school, I had a wonderful teacher in St. John's, Newfoundland. His name was Andreas Barban. He had a very dry sense of humor. And when I was 15, I went through a period of two or three weeks where I hardly touched the piano. So I think it was the third lesson I started playing and he stopped me and he looked at me and he said, Edmund, have I ever told you my combined blessing and curse? And I shook my head and said, no, you haven't. He said, well, it goes something like this. Someday, if you become a teacher, I hope you have students just like yourself. I got the message when I started practicing again. Number eight, outstanding teachers were consistent in behavior and good disposition. Okay, here's a comment from a student in middle school, and I think would be a typical middle school comment. The student said, and I quote, so for consistency in behavior and good disposition, the student said, she is always the same. She is a human being and not a nagging, driving bunch of nerves. Number nine, Outstanding teachers were interested in the pupils' problems. There was one very touching letter from an elementary school student who said, and I quote, It was not easy for me at school. My classmates did not like me as I was slow and sometimes tried to attract attention, upsetting everything. My teacher has been kind and patient with me. She has explained over and over again why we do this or that. She has helped me to win the love of the other children. Number 10, best teachers were open-minded and flexible, using different approaches, and when something didn't work, try something else. Number 11, 
They applied praise and recognition for doing things well. And the one that really shocked me was number 12. So the least frequent, the least important to these 12,000 students was the capability of the teacher in the subject. So the grade 5 student wasn't overly concerned if the math teacher was not a whiz at math. So this was in the mid-1940s, and for me, an eye-opener when I was studying this research in the 1980s and preparing for, to graduate with a music and an education degree. So let's fast forward over 60 years. 60 years later, in 2008, there was a study by Dr. Robert J. Walker that determined, interestingly, that there were 12 characteristics of an effective teacher. Now here, the teachers, some teachers in training, so, so university students in education programs were asked to reflect upon their public school education and talk about the teachers who were the most effective. And by effective, meaning the teachers who had the most significant impact on their lives. So this study happened over a period of several years with university students training to be teachers. And another difference is, is that this study, the results are not listed from most frequent to least frequent. So there were 12 characteristics. And the characteristics of the outstanding teachers determined in 2008. So these teachers came to class prepared, ready to teach. They were positive, had optimistic attitudes about teaching about the students. They had high expectations and they believed everyone could be successful. They were creative in how they taught. They were fair in handling the students and grading fairly. They had a personal touch. They cultivated a sense of belonging. They were compassionate. They had a sense of humor. They respected the students. They were forgiving and they admitted mistakes. So not that much different from Paul Witte's study in 1946. So even over 60 years later, after all of the advances and developments in education, technology, teacher training, uh, training resources, not much different. So I, I'm giving you these two studies because I feel as teachers it's worthwhile noting that while we live in a world that is constantly changing, sometimes it seems by the minute there are some things, often very important things, that do not change. So think about your favorite teachers. Does any of this sound familiar? It certainly does for me as I look back on the teachers I had in public school, my university professors and mentors. I liked my first piano teacher very much and I loved my lessons, even though what I was doing during those first six or seven years I would classify as recreational piano. I don't remember hearing her play or perform for her students, but I do remember her kind, energetic personality and how much I love the lessons. So this idea of being student-centered in our teaching, I believe, is fundamentally important. It is foundational. And when we look at a vast range of topics in piano teaching and, in, and trying to ensure that our students reap the benefits of the music instruction, the idea of student-centeredness and thinking about things from the perspective of the student, that idea will come back over and over. So let's compare Francis Clark's statement to that of a teacher who had a studio of some of the most highly advanced students in the world. So remember Francis Clark spent a great deal of her career developing a method series that is highly respected. And her work and goals centered around providing outstanding teaching materials for mainstream piano students. So let's move to the opposite side of the spectrum. 
The great Russian pedagogue Heinrich Neuhaus, who taught at the Moscow Conservatory for over 40 years, had a studio that included some of the finest concert pianists of the 20th century. I'll read a quote from his book, The Art of Piano Playing, where Neuhaus says, I have never in my teaching career adapted a composition to the pupil, but always attempted to adapt the pupil to the composition, whatever efforts it may have cost the pupil and also myself. There lives in my mind, my heart, a certain image of, let us say, Beethoven. I love him, I worship him, I experience him as a most significant event in my life. I feel and I know that he expressed something, that he created something which had never existed before him. I know within the limits of my ability that it has to be rendered in a certain way. Can I abandon this perfectly clear, perfectly real image? Can I agree to any kind of compromise, any concession to satisfy a weak pupil? Never. It would mean a lack of respect for myself and for the pupil. More than once, my colleagues hearing me teach have hinted to me that I was being quixotic, that all the same it will never come out the way I want it. I reply to them, my dear businessmen, you want 100% profits, whereas I will be overjoyed if I get 10%. So Neuhaus taught exceptionally talented pianists in one of the world's most renowned conservatories, and he had high artistic goals and very strong ideas about the music he was teaching. You could argue, argue perhaps that for him, the music was more important than the student, but the teaching was still student-centered in his approach as he worked tirelessly to adapt the student's strengths, weaknesses, to get as close as possible to his ideal interpretation of these masterworks. Even if it resulted in just 10% profit, to use Neuhaus's analogy, he was willing to settle for 10% if necessary. And so we ask ourselves that same question, I think, in every lesson. Whether you have a young student working on a piece in book one of the method series or an advanced pianist working on one of the ballades of Chopin, what is your goal? Is it the high artistic goal for everyone that you work tirelessly for and that's how you'll measure your success as a teacher or using your knowledge of the student, your diagnostic skills as a teacher, these skills that we use every minute of every lesson, work with the student to use the student's strengths, being aware of the weaknesses to arrive at an interpretation. My experience has been that wonderful surprises can happen in that journey and wonderful growth on the part of the student. So then the question, what is the main priority, the music or the student? It's a give and take situation every day, as I've said in every lesson that I believe involves both the music and the student. Leon Fleischer put it very clearly when he said, and I quote, you see, what it comes down to essentially is, do you teach the student? Or do you teach the music? When I teach, I generally do both. One must be aware of the particular problems of each student in achieving the musical goal. It becomes a combination of teaching the music and teaching the student. Leon Fleischer died this past August at the age of 92, and this was very sad news in our profession because we lost an outstanding performer and teacher. He was certainly an inspiration considering the huge obstacles he overcame as a pianist. I had the privilege of hearing him perform and observing him teach. I remember distinctly seeing him give a master class in a very large room at a major conference. The room was packed 
and I was immediately struck by how quickly he was able to put the students at ease and how clearly he communicated his ideas. So, as we think about our priorities, there are many instances in our daily teaching when we reassess and realign our priorities in our interactions with each student. It's complex, it's rewarding, and it's challenging because every student is different. This reminds me of a statement by the great pianist Alfred Cortot. He said, and I quote, the teacher must have a different method for each pupil. How true that is. And on the topic of individuality of the student, I return to the Francis Clark interview that I quoted at the beginning of this podcast, where she responded by saying, the child or the student is much more important than the music. She continued and she also said, and I quote, I know that there is no one way to teach. So as teachers, all of our students are different and there is no one way to teach. That means, therefore, as teachers, we need a huge selection of teaching tools in our toolkit. So it's my goal in these podcasts to talk about these tools and hopefully increase your resources as you, you continue this very important work. So what's on for the next episode? Well, we're going to start getting down to specifics. I want to focus next time on some common themes of great pianists and teachers, past and present. What I find fascinating is that if you look at the literature around teaching piano, from C.P.E. Bach's essay on the true art of playing keyboard instruments, published in the 1750s, right up to teachers and performers in the 20th and 21st centuries, there are common themes about piano teaching and piano playing that emerge. Very important common themes about what we should be thinking about as teachers, regardless of the age or ability of our students. Common themes, common priorities. So that's for next time. So thank you for listening to this first podcast. And I hope that the podcast and the PDF outline have been useful to you as you continue this very important work. There will be a new podcast available on the 1st and 15th of each month. If you would like more information on my work, my career, performances, and activities, please visit my website at edmundaw.com. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and safe. Bye for now. <laughs>